So we're going to continue this morning in this deep dive in Scripture, but we're going to combine it with some of the things that we've been learning over the last few weeks in this study called Who? Me. This study, Who? Me, the life of, it's a study of the life of Gideon. And uh, from that study, there are a couple, a couple things that, uh, the, the biggest thing I hope that we have learned from this study is that God uses people to change circumstances. The reason that I wanted to share this story of Gideon, a timid man who was afraid to follow God, the reason I wanted to share it with you is because I want our church to be equipped with the truth that God uses people to change circumstances and to be reminded that God wants to use us to change circumstances. God wants to use you and me to change circumstances, to make disciples in the world, in the church, and to make a difference in the world. And I want us to, I want us to see that and aspire to that. But that's not the only thing. That's, that's a key thing that we learned from this study of Gideon's life, but it's not the only thing because God is telling the story of how he used a person to change circumstances. It's true, but God's telling a much bigger story through Gideon as well. Uh, Gideon's life is much, part of a much bigger story arc. And that story arc is the story of how God is at work in the whole world, in the whole course of history. How uh, God is at work in the world and, 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 and his loving plan to restore our relationship with him unfolds through the ages. That's really the story of the Bible, how God's loving plan to restore our relationship with him unfolds through the ages. And Gideon, his story is part of that unfolding. It's part of this much larger story that God is telling. And part of that story is in, in this idea that God uses people to change circumstances, but there's only so much people can do. There's only so much a people will do because the world is a severely broken place, and all people, all people, all leaders, even all spiritual leaders, even all God-appointed leaders are flawed sinners. And so there's only so much that they can accomplish, and there's only so much good that they can be and do. That's actually part of the story of Gideon, is that you can't put your trust in princes. We read that a few minutes ago. In mortal men who cannot save. That's part of Gideon's story. You can't put your trust in princes. The point of... uh, You find Gideon in the book of Judges. The book of Judges is that point in the history of God's people where they had no king. And the reason they didn't have a king was because God wanted to be their king. God wanted to be their king, and he said, I'm not going to give you a king like everyone else has. I want to be the one you look to. I I want to be your king. And so instead of giving them a king, he instituted this uh, 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 governmental system of judges. And these were, uh, as we said before, not guys with gavels, but men and women that God raised up to execute, uh, to make decisions and and bring about new circumstances and uh, lead God's people. But they weren't kings. And that's what the book of Judges is about. It's about these judges. And we see in the book of Judges that God used these men and women to bring deliverance when God's people would repent. But there's an interesting interesting thing that happens in the book of Judges. Uh, the, The leaders, these judges, as you read the book of Judges, the leaders go from good to bad. 
there's a st- just like the book of Judges is this cycle. In the same way, there's a much bigger cycle that's taking place in the book of Judges. It's a downward cycle of the quality of leader. There's a steady deterioration of the quality of Judges as you read the book. The first three Judges are great. Read about them in the first half of the book of Judges. They all did their job well, and the land had peace for 40 years or however long. Now, you read the second half of Judges. There are seven Judges in the book. The first three are great. The last three are not great at all. Even the one whose name you might remember, Samson. You're like, well, what about Samson? Well, you might just be thinking of the Sunday school version of Samson. Okay, because the true version of Samson. I mean, Samson was a combination of Arnold Schwarzenegger and Harvey Weinstein. That's... That's who Samson was. He was, a, he was a muscular womanizer. He was a muscular womanizer that God ha- used. But you get the sense. You get the sense that God is, instead of giving people the leader that they need, He begins giving them the leaders they deserve. Three good and three bad and one in the middle. His name is Gideon. Which do you think he is? Good or bad? He's both. He is exactly both. We've already seen that. We've seen his good qualities. How he came from a position of timidity and stepped up to what God wanted him to do and tore down an idol and and, uh, trusted God with 300 men against 100,000 and how amazing that was. On the other hand, we saw that after that happened, he pursued his own personal vendetta against people. He turned sour on on, uh, his own countrymen. And worse of all, he established a, a, a place of worship and an idol for worship outside of the system that God had established. And that led his village and all of Israel into idolatry. So Gideon, again, we have this Sunday school version of Gideon that holds him up as all hero, but the truth is he's the transitional figure in the book of Judges where God's leaders go from good to bad. They go from trustworthy to untrustworthy. And Israel, instead of getting the leader that they need, they're getting the leaders that they deserve. So having no king didn't work. And having judges didn't work. But God's people want a leader, and they need a leader. They want someone to protect them, someone they can depend on, someone who can bring justice to their country, someone who can help weak people and and put down evil people and protect their nation. And so they need a leader. They need someone. Having no kings not working... Having judges is not working. And so they ask for a king. They ask for a king in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And that passage you can read along with me if you'd like this morning. You can just sit and listen. Israel asks for... That's the title I have at the top of my chapter. We're going to read the whole chapter in keeping with the morning. And the title I have at the top of mine is Israel asks for a king. When Samuel grew old, Samuel was a judge. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges 
for Israel. Oh, we know about judges, right? Just learn. Well, Samuel appoints his son as judges. They still don't have a king. And the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. More of the second half of the book of Judges. So the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said, You are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. He knew that's not the way it's supposed to be, so he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all the people. Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Samuel, don't take this personally. It's not about you. It's about me. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing now to you. Now listen to them. But warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. And he said, this is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons, and he will make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties. Still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He's going to take your sons. He's going to conscript them into his army, and they're going to do whatever he wants. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your men servants and maid servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys, he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. And the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. And the Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, Everyone go back to his own town. And Israel gets a king. And guess how it goes for them. Guess how it goes. Do they finally get a human leader who will bring justice? Do they finally get a a human leader who will do the right thing? Who will bring equity and strength? Who will protect the weak? Who will put down evil? Who will uh, ensure that their nation heads in, in the right ways? Do they finally get that? No. They get Saul. They get Saul, a tall, insecure, vengeful, petty, moody, selfish, paranoid leader. It's a good thing they didn't have Twitter back then. <laughs> this king was a disaster. 
The next king was Israel's best king. His name was David. He was Israel's best king. He was a murderer, an adulterer, a lousy father, a manipulator. He committed a sin once that brought God's judgment on the entire country and every citizen of his nation paid the price for his sin. That was Israel's best king. Then his son, Solomon. Solomon, the epitome of what Samuel warned against. If you have a king, he's going to multiply uh, armies and uh, horses and women and taxes. And that's exactly what Solomon did. He multiplied for himself armies and horses and women and taxes for his own enjoyment. David and Solomon, those are the good kings. Those are the good kings. From there, after Solomon, the, the a monarchy splits in two. The kingdom splits in two. Now it's Israel and Judah. They, they are not even united anymore. They didn't even have a king who could keep them together. And now it's Israel and Judah. And now you have, instead of one line to track, you've got two lines to track. And they are both downward trending. And uh, the, Israel begins this slow slide into everything that they were trying to avoid. Now, the quality of leader swings back and forth. Sometimes you have a good king, sometimes you have a bad king. The good kings, they're okay, but the bad kings are really bad. So you have this little bit of a trend line, you know, but the down, it's all downward sloping. And they start this slow slide into everything that God's people were trying to avoid, everything they didn't need. They didn't need uh, national injustice. They didn't want personal injustice. They didn't want oppression and weakness and vulnerability. But that's what they got. Injustice, oppression, vulnerability, and they still didn't have what they wanted. They didn't have the leader they needed. They had the leaders they deserved, but they didn't have the leaders that they needed. And during that time, during this downward trend of kings of varying qualities, during that period of time, God makes a promise. God makes a promise. And He makes a promise, not just to Israel, but to the whole world. And His promise is this. Someday, I'm going to give you the leader you need, not the leader that you deserve. One place we read about that promise, Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, about 800 years or so B.C. This man named Isaiah writes these words, and this is what he says. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom. Lots of scripture this morning, right? Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those who are living in the land of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. You've enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest. As men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you've shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. Every warrior's boot used in battle, 
Every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, not the leader we deserve, finally the leader that we need. I want you to notice a couple things about that beautiful section of Scripture. First of all, I want you to notice at the very beginning in kind of the prose part, the paragraph, uh, at the very beginning of the passage, let's take a look at that, that uh, this is a promise to Israel, but it goes beyond the scope of Israel. It's not just a, problem to, a, a promise to Zebulun and Naphtali, the, the tribes of Israel, but to Galilee of the Gentiles, a promise for the whole world. And the promise is this, that the people who are walking in darkness, who keep getting the leaders they deserve, the people who are walking in someday a light is going to shine. And as we read on in that passage, we read about that, that this light, uh, beginning uh, next uh, section, uh, where you will enlarge the nation, increase their joy, they will rejoice because God will shatter the yoke that burdens them. The bars across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. What a leader should do in freeing people from oppression, God will actually do. We read on. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood, all of the accoutrements of war and violence are going to be destined for, they're just going to be fuel for the fire. God's going to take all those things, all those tools of destruction, and God's going to get rid of them. How can he afford to do that? For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. The government's going to be on his shoulders. Finally, the leader that we need. The one who will have the government on his shoulders will be known as Everlasting Father, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. God promises in this downward trend the leader that we need. 800 years later, an angel announces to a group of shepherds in the same part of the country. And this angel says this. Oh, I'm sorry. I missed that. Let's read that. No, 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 no. Let's read that. That's, uh, this, this, we're reading about this, uh, this leader that we, that we need. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. I mean, here, what a beautiful picture of the leader that we need, but no leader we've ever had before. And then, 850 years later, angels announce to shepherds in a field that that night... This promise has been fulfilled. The angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, not just Israel, but all the people. For today in the town of David, the best king you ever had, but he wasn't good enough. Today in the town of David, a Savior is born, a rescuer. He is Christ, Messiah, the Anointed One. He is Christ the Lord. And here's what is different about this leader. The angels promise this perfect leader. 
or the angels announce the birth of this perfect leader. And here's what makes him different. Here's what makes him perfect. Philippians 2 tells us about this leader. He says, uh, who being in very nature, God. Well, that's different. (laughs) Who being in very nature, God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, this perfect leader. In very nature, God. But he's not hanging on to that. He made uh, made himself nothing. What kind of leader does that? Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. And under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ, Jesus Messiah, Jesus the Anointed One, whose birth was announced by Jesus Christ, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now you work backwards in this passage, you see kind of two stages. This stage is the stage of the government will be upon his shoulders, right? This is where every knee bows and every tongue confesses that he is the Lord. But something has to happen before this takes place. There's another movement. This this is the second half of his job right here. Where every knee will bow and every tongue confess. The first part of his job uh, is is different. See, the, 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 the second part of his job to put everything under his under his rule and reign and make everything right, that doesn't come until something else happens. And that's something else we read in the first half of this passage. And that's where the one who is in very nature God doesn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead he makes himself nothing. He's made in the appearance of man. God in a body, the leader we need. God in a body who becomes obedient to death, even death on a cross. See, the leader we need is someone who can not just make things right with the world. The leader we need is someone who can make us right with God. And then make things right with the world. And that's who Jesus is, and that's why He came. He came to make things right with us first, and then He will come and make things right in the world. Jesus knew this was His mission. And so one night, after he'd gathered his followers around him, he explained this mission to them. And they didn't fully understand what was going to happen. But Jesus talked about the very fact that that something is going... Before Jesus makes everything right with the world, he was going to have to make us right with God. And he gathered his followers on the night that he was betrayed. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. And uh, they were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, surely not I, Lord. And Jesus replied, the one who's dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. And then Judas The man who would betray him said, Surely not I, Rabbi. And Jesus said, Yes, it is you. 
And while they were eating, Jesus took bread and gave thanks and broke it. And he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take and eat. This is my body. What? And then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. What? I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they'd sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. When I read this passage to you and you hear it in your ears, it makes me wonder how many times God's people have read that passage before the observing of communion. Jesus knew that before he could make everything right with the world and before the government could be upon his shoulders, that, that he had to make everything right with us. And that's why he came and poured out his life in this first installment of his job as the leader that we need. And Jesus said 2,000 years ago to those who follow him, I want you to do what I'm doing, taking this bread and drinking this cup. I want you to do this as a way to remember me until I come again, until I come. That's 1 Corinthians 11. Do this in remembrance. As often as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, at which point the government will be upon his shoulders. But between now and then, we remember how he made us right with God. And that's what we want to do this morning. Just like the church has worshipped Jesus for 2,000 years through communion, we're going to do this morning. I'd like to ask the men who are going to help me serve if you'll come and have a seat.